0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: Is capitalism our economic system? driving us towards climate collapse or is it a system which can provide the incentives and the solutions to avert climate catastrophe? That's the theme of this week's debate as we're going back to January 2020 when we staged the motion to stop climate collapse we must end capitalism. It's a really fascinating debate and it was one of the last we got to do before COVID-19. I remember it was actually one of our most popular debates ever with over 2,000 people on the waiting list to attend in person. It took place at the height of Extinction Rebellion protests in early 2020 which made for an excellent backdrop to this fascinating debate. We hope you enjoy it. And now let's go to the episode.
2: Welcome, everybody, to tonight's Intelligence Squared debate. I'm not sure I've ever been involved with anything with such a long waiting list. Well, there was that one time in a and uh, Anyway, tonight's motion is to stop climate collapse, we must end capitalism. It's a provocative and timely talking point. The discussion about climate change has at last become mainstream. It was, for the first time, I think it's fair to say, a really big issue at the general election, with its own TV debate, complete with those melting ice blocks. It was also, of course, a central theme of that ultimate convention of capitalism, the World Economic Forum at Davos. So does that mean climate change is being co-opted by the current economic system? Will the gurus of capitalism guide us away from environmental catastrophe? Or, as many of those who've long warned of impending disaster would argue, Donald Trump's Prophets of Doom – Is capitalism the root cause of the problem? Well, I hope those are some of the issues we'll grapple with tonight. Without further ado, let's begin. And our first speaker for the motion is George Monbiot. He's a Guardian journalist and author. His best-selling books include Captive State, The Corporate Takeover of Britain, The Age of Consent, A Manifesto for a New World Order, and most recently, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. George, over to you. you.
3: Thanks very much, Ritter. Now, I realise that in calling for you to vote for this motion, I'm making quite a tough ask here. To call for the end of capitalism in the 21st century is like saying God is dead in the 19th. And perhaps it's a particularly tough ask for people who have paid 30 quid to get in. (laughs) But I know you're a broad-minded and intellectually curious bunch, otherwise you wouldn't be here. So I'm going to ask you, hard as I know it is, to the greatest extent possible, to put aside all prior beliefs and judge the arguments this evening on their merits, which of course will inevitably mean that Fahana and I win this vote. So. What is capitalism? It might be quite a useful starting point to agree on our terms. Well, it's an economic system uh, which is uh, whose means, of produ- where the means of production are privately owned for the purpose of generating profits and accumulating wealth. It can be distinguished from other forms of profit-seeking by the general commodification of land, labour, and money. As such, its origins date back to about the mid-16th century in England, and as a mature system, it's about 200 years old. I hope we can all agree, broadly, on that as a definition. I hope we can also all agree on what climate collapse is. Climate collapse is what happens somewhere north of 1.5 degrees of global heating above pre-industrial levels. This is why the Paris Agreement calls on the governments which have signed it, including our own, to keep temperature levels well below 2 degrees and to seek to keep them at 1.5 degrees. At 2 degrees, we see the loss of almost all the world's coral reefs. We see ice-free sea at the Arctic becoming a regular event with devastating consequences as um, uh, runaway feedbacks kick in, the dark water absorbing more heat, the permafrost releasing its carbon. We've seen... Recent papers suggesting what they call multiple breadbasket failures. The world's crucial food production regions being taken out at the same time by simultaneous heat waves. We see major cities threatened by inundation. I hope, too, we can all agree that is climate collapse. Now, I'm going to argue that capitalism has three essential and intrinsic features without which it would not be capitalism that drive us inexorably towards climate collapse. And the first of these is growth. Growth is essential to capitalism. Without growth, capitalism is deemed to fail. The rising growth in consumption is is the aggregate impact of profit-seeking activities. In other words, it's the inevitable result of capitalism as successfully practiced. And this leads to a slight problem, that perpetual growth, which is what capitalism seeks, on a finite planet, leads inexorably to environmental disaster. Now, those who seek to justify the system will say, well, hang on a moment, that growth can be decoupled from its environmental impacts. You can have rising growth and falling environmental impacts. Now, we know that where material resource consumption, the consumption of stuff is concerned, that has never been demonstrated. However, it does appear to be the case in some nations where greenhouse gas emissions are concerned. There's a famous study by the World Resources Institute which said that across developed nations, the richest nations in the world, 35 richest nations, um, we saw between 2000 and 2014 a general reduction in greenhouse gas emissions even as economic growth rose in those places. And uh, for instance in the UK we saw a 24% reduction Across that period, even while there was a 27% increase in consumption, in, in, in economic growth. But it's not quite as it seems. Because what that study was looking at is what's called territorial emissions. The greenhouse gases you produce within your own nation. When Carbon Brief reanalyzed the figures... It looked at consumption emissions, the greenhouse gases for which you're responsible in the goods that your nation imports, embodied in those goods. And that reduced the 24% to 9% across the 15 years, about 0.6% a year reductions in greenhouse gases. When you then take uh, take account of flying and shipping, which are not included in those figures, it comes out more or less at zero. Now, a recent study by the UN Environment Programme says that to stand a good chance of preventing more than 1.5 degrees of global heating, we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 7.6% per year for for the next 10 years. Not zero or not, as it may now be, minus 2, minus 7.6%. Well, hang on a minute. During this entire period of the study, 2000 to 2014, the British government and the British people in general are making massive efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions. We uh, passed the Climate Change Act. Um, the, the government spent billions on subsidising renewables. We got out of coal, largely, and into gas. A really important transition. Well, you know, not important enough, but it should have made a huge difference. We insulated our homes, we changed our light bulbs. So how come we were flatlining? Well, the answer is that those efforts were counteracted by economic growth. That trying to cut your impacts while your economy is growing, while resource consumption is growing, means running down the rising escalator. It makes it difficult, if not impossible. And the same applies to the next two intrinsic features of capitalism. The second one is this um, uh, feature, which has been there since John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, an absolutely central feature of capitalism, which is the assumption that the money in your bank account equates to your right to own natural wealth. You can own as much land, as much gold, as much you can eat as much meat or fish as you want. You can have, uh, you can uh, create as much, burn as much carbon as you like, as long as you've got the money for that. And because of that. Capitalism is a really lousy way of solving our problems because it means that those with the money take the lion's share, depriving other people. And however hard we pursue growth, we cannot solve them. So uh, one study, for instance, shows that to uh, reduce poverty by $1, you need to generate $111 of economic growth. On the current trajectory to ensure that everybody, through growth, it's five dollars a day we would it would take 200 years we would need to raise the size of the global economy 170 times but even at current levels of economic growth we are bursting through environmental limits 170 times is not the end of poverty it's the end of life on earth and then there's the third feature, which is a promise central to capitalism, that everyone can aspire to private luxury. We can all become rich. Now, even if it weren't for that distributional problem, which I mentioned, there's another issue there. There's simply not enough environmental space for everybody to aspire to private luxury. The only reason that some people can do it is that other people don't. Otherwise, we end up just cooking ourselves in very short order. Um, The richest 1% in the world use 175 times as much carbon as the poorest 10%. Is everyone supposed to use the same amount? These three features of capitalism turn it into a gun pointed at the living world. We cannot sustain a habitable climate and sustain capitalism. Instead, we need a system based on a different principle of private sufficiency and public luxury. There's enough for everyone as long as we share it. There is not enough as long as we seek to accumulate it and to keep raising our aggregate and individual consumption. You cannot make those changes while still calling it capitalism. There's an old and vaguely attributed saying, which is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. My friends, I want you to mobilize your imaginations tonight. (laughs) The question that faces us is, do we stop capitalism to allow life to continue, or stop life to allow capitalism to continue? Thank you.
1: of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin Monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers 3 months of access for just 99 cents that's right 3 months for only 99 cents with the code Squared simply visit Marquee.tv and use the promo code Squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV <music> George, thank you very
2: much. Let's hear from our first speaker against the motion, Adair Turner, Chair of the Energy Transitions Commission and former Chair of the Financial Services Authority and first Chair of the UK Climate Change Committee and a former Director-General of the CBI. And also, I should point out, he played a leading role in the redesign of global banking regulation following the 2008 financial crisis and is author of Between Debt and the Devil, Money, Credit and Fixing Global Finance.
4: The debate this evening is not about whether climate change is a potentially catastrophic threat to humanity, but about how we effectively deal with it. George has described some of the reasons why we have to act fast. He's talked about the Arctic sea ice, the dangers of tipping points with the methane release, the loss of corals, the danger to food supplies. And I'm not going to repeat or expand on that further because Tony and I completely agree with that point. We are facing a potential disaster and we have left it dangerously late to take the action that can deal with it. The International Panel on Climate Change says that we must limit global warming to 1.5 degree centigrade above pre-industrial levels. And to do that, we will have to reduce the emissions from industry buildings, transport and agriculture to zero by around mid-century. And I mean real zero. Not a pretend zero in which we go on consuming large amounts of fossil fuels, but tell ourselves that we've bought some offsets via some reforestation somewhere else in the world. So the objective is clear. Get emissions to zero by around mid-century. The question is how to get there. One way might be... To reject, as George has suggested, the very idea of capitalist material prosperity growth. And there's certainly a role for that, at least in already developed rich countries. All of us can, and I think ideally should, cut our carbon footprints by using public transport, by walking or bicycling, by reducing avoidable flights or by reducing or eliminating red meat consumption. Spending our income instead on the many forms of capitalist product, entertainment, high-quality restaurant meals, things which are intensive in design, which do not require more material goods and energy to support them. But I think we have to be realistic about the limits of that change our lifestyle approach. In major city centers, we can largely live without cars, and our cities will be much nicer places when we do that. But you can't do without a car in the small towns of rural France, and the Gilets Jaunes, Yellow Vest movement shows what happens if a government ignores that reality. And in India, where I have spent the last three days discussing how to decarbonize the Indian economy, there are 1.35 billion people currently using about one-third of the energy per capita which we use, and who want in future to enjoy Western middle-class standards of living, and that will require more energy in their transport systems, in air conditioning systems, which for understandable reasons are growing rapidly and embedded in the consumer goods they buy. And I have to say to George that if I had turned up on Monday and told the Indians people that I was dealing with that was the answer was that they were not going to have the standards of living that everybody in this room has, the conversation would have ended at that point. So while lifestyle change has a role, the main route to radical emissions reductions must be to use energy more efficiently and to use only zero carbon forms of energy. And the good news is that it is undoubtedly technically possible to get to net zero by that route, and we broadly know how to do it. We need to electrify as much of the economy as possible, increasing total global electricity supply about four or five times. And all of that electricity must be zero carbon. And that's possible because the sun shines down on Earth each day, 8,000 times as much energy as total human energy demand. And the cost of solar electricity of taking those photons and turn them into electricity has fallen over 85% in the last 10 years. So while George talked about absolute limits to material supply, actually in relation to clean energy... Once we fix the technology, there is no limit to the amount of clean energy that we can capture and enjoy. We also need to use hydrogen in multiple applications. We can use it, for instance, to decarbonize our steel production, to decarbonize our shipping, and we must make that hydrogen in a zero-carbon fashion. But you can do that via electrolysis using zero-carbon electricity. All of that will require investments which if you add them up and think about them in trillions of dollars or trillions of of pounds seem very large but actually as a percentage of the total global economy are relatively small. One or two percent and totally affordable. So let's be clear we can build a zero carbon economy while supporting growth in still poor countries and the costs are surprisingly small. And the best way To do that is not to reject capitalism, but to regulate tax and direct capitalist activity while still using private enterprise incentives and market competition to help get there at least cost. And what that means is that we need to have strong policies to force capitalism to do what we want it to do while leaving it to decide the details of how we get there. We could and we should ban all sales of internal combustion engines from, let us say, 2030, but we should then leave it to competing capitalist firms driven by the profit motive to work out how to build electric vehicles in the most efficient fashion. And I believe that we should ban all plastic incineration, all plastic exports and all plastic sent to landfill by at the very latest 2025 and impose a carbon price on fossil fuel inputs into new plastics production. But we should then leave it to private enterprise to determine the precise mix of mechanical or chemical recycling technologies which we know exist and which could enable us to continue using plastics in many applications but in a zero carbon fashion. Now, right-wing ideologues will, of course, argue that if you regulate and tax capitalism in this fashion, it's no longer capitalism at all. That the only capitalism possible is the ultra-free market, totally unregulated capitalism beloved by people like Donald Trump. But that is nonsense because capitalism can come in many different forms, and we can choose the form we want. Capitalism, and here I agree with George, means essentially a system in which most, but not all, not necessarily all, of the means of production distribution exchange are owned by private enterprise competing in markets to make profit. And capitalism can flourish and deliver benefits for humanity, even if, and indeed precisely because, it is tightly regulated and appropriately taxed. Indeed, capitalism was most successful in delivering prosperity to the many, not just the few, when, in the 1950s and 60s, it was combined with very tight regulation of the financial sector, with a significant role for state-owned enterprises in some specific sectors of the economy, and with top marginal tax rates far above current levels. But nobody doubted that Germany, Britain and America in the 1950s and 60s were capitalist economies delivering both more rapid growth and far better environmental results than the non capitalist economies of Russia or Eastern Europe. Three weeks ago, George presented a fascinating TV documentary called Apocalypse Cow. In it, he argued that to stop climate collapse, we must radically reduce the role of land-intensive agriculture, and I agreed almost entirely with his arguments. Like George, I think we are probably on the cusp of a technological revolution which will enable us to continue, if we want, to enjoy the taste of red meat, but produced in a synthetic fashion which does not involve destructive deforestation nor terrible lives for sentient beings." And to illustrate that exciting technological potential, George flew, and he admitted this was breaking his normal rules, he flew to Finland to visit a company called Solar Foods, which is developing synthetic ways of producing carbohydrates, which we can then either consume directly or use as feedstock for synthetic meats. So what type of company is Solar Foods? Well, it's a private capitalist company. Raising money from private investors who will expect a good return on their risky investment. And while solar foods managers undoubtedly want to do good for the world, they and their investors may well also be motivated by the fact that if they succeed, they will make good money. I think we must embrace the innovative potential of capitalism, even while constraining it, taxing it, regulating it, and pointing it in the right direction. And if instead we try to abolish capitalism, I fear we will not stop climate catastrophe, but make it more likely.
2: Let's hear now from our second speaker for the motion, Fahana Yamin. She's an international environmental lawyer and activist with Extinction Rebellion. She was a negotiator on the Paris Agreement with the small island states. In April last year, she was arrested after gluing herself to Shell's headquarters. And she's a co-author of This Is Not a Drill, an Extinction Rebellion handbook.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. There's a lot in what Adair Turner has said that I agree with. And we must accept that the solutions to preventing climate chaos, preventing climate carnage, actually exist. They exist today. Most of the technologies that we need to use to bring emissions under control exist today. I think what capitalism doesn't do is deal with the social injustices that are already happening with the global warming that we've committed to and that will continue to rise, should we also miss the 1.5 degree target and go overshooting beyond that? At the moment, we have a kind of capitalism that does not look after any of us. It doesn't look after the people in the UK. It doesn't look after the people overseas. It doesn't look after the planet. It does not look after nature. So I feel that maybe to add to George's definition of capitalism, a simple way is maybe to see capitalism as a pyramid of extraction. That's what capitalism is. It's a pyramid where people and nature are at the bottom and profits and wealth and power accumulate towards the top. They've accumulated in such obscene quantities that they threaten the very nature of our democracies. There used to be a tenuous kind of link between um, capitalism and democracy, but actually that link isn't really true. And if anything, that link is going in the reverse direction. So why did I um, choose to speak for this motion? Why did I choose to join the rebels back in April um, I've got two books here, and it's not because I want you to buy them and sell them. I, and buy this one, by the way, because all the profits go. I want you to, to. This is a climate change and carbon markets book that I wrote, and came out in 2005. We spent the first decade of my life as a climate change lawyer negotiating the UNFCCC, the climate convention, and then the Kyoto Protocol. And Kyoto Protocol gave rise to carbon markets, which were also developed in the European Union. So I've got quite a lot of um, you know, history of being um, into the very kinds of regulations, the very kinds of incentives, the very kinds of market mechanisms that uh, Adair has said can constrain capitalism, can constrain and control pollution. And 20, 30 years later, I have to say those mechanisms do not work. They don't work. All of the experts now agree that using emissions trading for a structural problem, like climate change, does not work. We're not talking about an end-of-pipe, what we call, you know, fix-it solution, a technology that we can just use uh, uh, and ask uh, power power stations, for example, to bolt on in the way they did with sulfur. We're asking for an entire rejigging of the global economy, Of every country's energy system, of every country's agricultural system, of every country's transport system, of every citizen's aspirational desires. That is what we call a systemic challenge. That is the carbon economy that we need to change and we cannot regulate it simply by looking at all the technologies that are available and saying somehow magically the system will adopt them. I think the the, the, the my disillusion slightly you know intellectual as it was um with the kinds of mechanisms that we were being uh, uh, urged to to, to to put forward as solutions really came to a head as it became more and more clear that the influence the power the preponderance political power of the biggest corporations in the world all of which trade in in carbon intensive products, oil, gas, coal, um, you name it. Those are the biggest ones. Those companies, uh, whether they're state owned or privately owned, those were lobbying and uh, 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 controlling the sort of narrative and greenwashing and actually heavily influencing the way in which elections take place. You see that very clearly behind the scenes if you're a day-to-day lawyer uh, as i have been in the in the climate regime you see uh, regulations being vetoed watered down you see permits that were meant to be constrained given out for free uh, being given out in excess which means that none of these mechanisms really worked um my final um uh, trigger for gluing myself to shell was really a report that came out Uh, which said that since the signing of the Paris Agreement in twenty fifteen, one billion dollars had been spent by the top five oil companies in the world on lobbying and marketing and greenwashing. That was um, for me a really important sense of outrage that I felt. I don't know if you can see this here, but this is like a, I don't know if you can see this tiny sliver. You know, if someone served you that as a cake slice, it wouldn't be a slice, it would be a sliver. That little tiny orange sliver is the slice of funding by the oil majors that goes into low carbon and green sources of energy. All of the rest, this is a 2019 figures, goes into still Digging out, exploring, uh, and producing yet more fossil fuels. The scale of this uh, destruction is immense. Um, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, which is the largest, most profitable company in the entire world, um, produces uh, profits of around $3,000 per second, uh, around $300 million per day. So trying to control and regulate companies as large as that essentially is a geopolitical challenge. It is not a technological challenge. We have to find a different system for constraining uh, these sorts of uh, dynamics. And I feel that's what we haven't really understood. I want very much to say that there is a level playing field and somehow the new technologies that Adair has talked about, which are there, most of them, by the way, will emerge. They won't. They won't because the largest share of government handouts, what we call fossil fuel subsidies, just call them for what they are, government handouts, are being paid to fossil fuel companies still because they have political power and control. The scale of those subsidies is mind-boggling So there's two ways of counting these subsidies. If you include the cost of actual damage, they come to like five trillion dollars. That's an obscenely huge amount. That means that these companies are being uh, supported by governments and they have taken control of the economy in ways that does not lend itself uh, to a sort of reformist mindset. That's why I think the um, young people and um, people who are really active in, in, in politics are coming up with much more radical solutions. So I don't want to leave you with a lack of hope and lack of alternatives. I think big business, especially big business and finance, the UK is the heart of the global finance uh, uh, industry, are need to be absolutely controlled with regulation. We need to say stop funding and financing these activities we need to say to our governments very clearly stop using taxpayers money to support and subsidize these same industries we need to say to the ceos of these companies and the finance industry you are failing humanity we have to make very clear that what they're leaving us with is the challenge especially to younger people of reversing this cataclysmic um, breakdown. They're leaving the burden of coping emotionally, physically, mentally, and rebuilding institutions of trust, because young people and people uh, all over this country, especially those who have not gained from globalization, not gained from capitalism, no longer trust governments and no longer believe that we can uh, uh, um, bring prosperity in the way that they Uh, have been led to expect. I think it's very important to accept that the public actually have a visceral understanding of the failings of capitalism and have already rejected it. That's what's happening up and down uh, the world, whether you look at the the Chilean uh, uh, miners who have uh, rejected, and the people in Chile who turned out in their millions, the Gilets Jeunes, you know, there's a, the student strikers. Uh, everywhere you look, there is an outcry and a desire and an appetite for huge amounts of change. Um, I think what would really help is a structural 10-year plan uh, you can call it the Green New Deal, the Nature New Deal, something like the Marshall Plan that was uh, uh, done after the Second World War to bring together, to bring societies together, to look globally and to make sure that we put in place a system which is akin to the natu- National Health Service. And I would call it the Natural Health Service is what we now need for the whole planet. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Let's hear from our last speaker against the motion, Tony Juniper. He's an environmentalist and former executive director of Friends of the Earth. He's the author of What Has Nature Ever Done For Us? How Money Really Does Grow On Trees, What Nature Does For Britain, and Rainforest Dispatches From Earth's Most Vital Front Lines. He's also the co-author with The Prince of Wales of Harmony, A New Way of Looking at Our World.
3: Thank you.
6: Thank you, Ritter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I have to say that in my long career as an environmentalist, I reached the conclusion that the question we're debating this evening is the most important of all. Namely, what kind of economic system is going to enable us to navigate the climate change and nature emergency? And while many people talk about population growth and the fact that our numbers have tripled since 1950 bear in mind that the size of the global economy has increased tenfold. And the consequences of that we can see in elevated greenhouse gas emissions, the mass extinction of animals and plants, and ecological degradation on a global scale. If you look at the way different economies have greeted these trends over the decades, it's largely been seen as the price of progress, with both socialist and capitalist systems both seeking to expand output as the means of achieving human well-being. Both systems, capitalist and socialist, saw growth as their most vital and essential objective. One promoted the process via markets, private property and corporations, the other via central planning, state ownership of industry and workers managing the organizations that employed them. Both saw the rapid exploitation of natural resources as central to their plans to expand GDP. They both wanted to expand the size of the pie, with capitalists expecting the wealth to trickle down through society, and socialists engaging in more or less active redistribution. Looking at the last hundred years of economic experiments conducted under those two banners, it's fair to say that we have not yet invented a large-scale economic system that can be regarded as ecologically sustainable. And as previous speakers have pointed out this evening, this is now a matter of grave urgency. We have to shift from where we are to a sustainable economy in a matter of years. And as we consider the importance of urgency... Just bear in mind that pretty much all democracies across the world vote for some kind of capitalist system. Whether it's the socially progressive form that you see in some of the Scandinavian countries or the neoliberal excesses of the United States, broadly speaking, that is what citizens back. If we are going to make this shift in time, then we're going to need to find ways of getting citizens to back that economic transformation in ways that they would like. And looking at the world from where I see it at the moment, it's going to be most likely to do that through some form of capitalist transformation, changing the system that we have rather than pushing it off a cliff. And if we are to succeed then we need to harness the dynamic innovation of markets, of competition, and the inventiveness that comes with the profit motive. If we're going to do that, what kind of system might we envisage? So unlike the other side this evening, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give you some solutions rather than simply a diagnosis of the problem. And it's not going to be a five-year Soviet plan. It's going to be a five-point capitalist transformation program. Point one in this transformation program is to adopt legal frameworks adopted by governments to embed hard caps to reflect the need to reduce to zero greenhouse gas emissions and to restore the natural environment. That needs to be done globally through the Convention on Biodiversity and the Convention on Climate Change and domestically through things like the Climate Change Act and the Environment Act that was introduced into Parliament today. We need targets set out in law that reflect the scale of the ecological emergency. Once we've established the caps, we need to put in place the tools and the policies to meet those new goals. We can do this through the regulation on emission standards, through the regulation of the financial markets, supportive trade policy, and of course, in relation to climate change, a price on carbon. Imagine what would happen if over the next 10 years we introduced a £100 carbon tax per tonne. £10 a year, rising between 2020 and 2030, that would send a very clear signal that it's time to get out of fossil fuels. It would be transformative. And it could be part of a wider ecological tax reform programme, whereby people on lower incomes have their income tax reduced, and instead we levy taxation on pollution and waste. Three in this plan would be a shift of the subsidies regime. been pointed out already quite rightly that hundreds of billions of pounds are awarded to fossil fuel corporations and industrial agriculture across the globe every year. We need to switch those subsidies into the cleaner and greener alternatives, sustainable regenerative agriculture, renewable energy amongst them. These three steps, hard limits, new regulatory tools and reoriented subsidies, would ensure that the ultimate means of economic activity, namely a healthy biosphere, would be better protected. On top of this, however, it would also be necessary to correct the rather fundamental fact that neoliberal capitalism has lost sight of why it exists in the first place. This is why parts four and five of the transformation plan are about ensuring that capitalism delivers long-term well-being for all rather than hoping that self-interested buyers and sellers will deliver that automatically. We know that they won't do. So part four would be the adoption of new measures to judge economic success, embracing human well-being and ecological sustainability as central measures of performance of the economy, not simple, crude GDP. That would be put into the dustbin of history where it belongs. Instead of measuring and celebrating increased consumption and waste, which is basically what GDP growth does, we would have economic measures to instead celebrate long, happy and sustainable lives for everybody. Part five would focus on the private sector companies that are at the very beating heart of the capitalist system. They would be subject to new laws requiring that they be driven by a purpose to promote the well-being of people and society, not simply the interests of shareholders. Companies would still harness markets, profits and innovation, but they would do it against a new set of goals that were set out in new company laws. They would still seek profit, but not necessarily profit maximization, nor profit via any legal route. Their purpose would be sustainable development. Governments can legislate for all of these things, and in different parts of the world, in different ways, they're beginning to do it. We need to put superchargers on that agenda, however. My argument this evening is not predicated on the view that it's capitalism per se that has caused the mess we are in but rather the economic system more broadly, whether it be capitalist, socialist, or anything else that we've invented. We are very, very short of time. People want positive alternatives that they can vote for. Looking around the world at where people presently pass, cast their votes, I would say the best chance we've got is to change capitalism, to invest in its transformation, not to push it off a cliff, because that will end in even more certain disaster. Thank you very much.
2: Mm. <laughs> well thank you very much to all of you there was so much to think about there i want to begin by actually picking up that last point that tony made if i may with you Fahana. you're in a hurry the the, the motion says it all we're talking about climate collapse why worry about overturning the system why not work with what you've got because
5: we've been trying for 30 years to have legally binding targets and caps, and they haven't happened. So it's not like we've not not thought about any of these things. You know, we've got to the point of rebellion because we've understood that the system cannot create the solutions that are necessary for its own transformation. In a more sort of elegant way, Audre Lorde, who is a, a feminist poet, thinker, strategist. Um, you know, said, said it very nicely, actually. She said, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him as his own game, but they will never enable us to buy genuine change. That's my insight from the last 30 years. We've been banging our heads trying to do exactly these things. And the very industries, the very countries that are dependent then on these industries, because entire countries are then dependent on some of the largest industries, are not making the change. I did want to add one more very large subsidy, which is the military. So fossil fuel, you know, takes place now largely in hugely authoritarian regimes. The destruction of nature is backed by a fist of force. Nature defenders are being killed And those regimes are held together. That is an additional
2: cost in the system. And we don't talk about it, and it requires radical change. Adair Turner, you were a regulator in various different guises. Why are we still having this conversation now, if it was possible to drive through the kind of change that, that Tony was talking about?
4: Well, because we didn't win the argument, but we've got to win the argument. But I think the challenge for George and for Hana is they say, we failed to win these arguments in the past. Lobbying and the power of money has prevented having tight enough rules and regulations. So we're going to abolish capitalism. But you're going to have to win the argument for abolishing capitalism. Why is it going to be easier to win the argument for abolishing capitalism than to win the argument for regulating capitalism? The point is we've got to win the argument. And once we've won the argument and got the legally binding targets that Tony talks about, we will then find that having a market place which helps you work out the details of it will be better than having public ownership of the means of production and distribution and exchange. Because I do think it is incumbent on Hannah and George to say what the alternative is. So it's very easy to say, we hate capitalism, it's not going to work. The alternative is public ownership of the means of production and distribution exchange and we know that when that was applied in Eastern Europe and Russia the environmental impacts of that were far far worse than the impacts of capitalism. Well, we're
2: going to we're going there's so much to talk about. I, everyone's bursting to talk. We're going to open the debate up to all of you. Before we do that, I just want to reveal the results of the pre-vote. That's how you voted when you came in. So 38% of you are for the motion to stop climate collapse. We must end capitalism. 28% are against. And 34% are undecided. So you're the ones that uh, the panel has to persuade that we all have to watch. So we'll go to the floor. This is your chance to take part. Question number one.
3: Hello. Um, My question Uh, really relates to some of the examples that have been given of the countries, whether it's Finland or Norway. I mean, frankly, in the great scheme of things, rather small in terms of population. If we look at the very large populous economies of Asia, of India, and of Africa, and ask the questions of how you end capitalism, or end consumerism in those societies some are democratic some are not democratic that just doesn't seem to be addressed we also have the other major economy of the united states which seems to have gone off on a sort of private and rather peculiar mission of its own
2: okay let's have the second question number two over there
1: so i had a question to both sides which was um the pro side said that uh, if we include, continue with economic growth in order to put, let people out of poverty we're going to go straight into uh, that's going to uh, hugely overshoot the boundary, um, our resources and our environmental boundaries how do we practically bring people out of poverty while also um, while not having economic growth and then to the against side how do we bring people out of poverty with economic growth, growth while not growing our current emissions in the global north
2: Thank you very much. So, uh, George, do you want to go
3: first? Sure. Um, I mean, it's interesting, you know, picking up the contrast between the US and Finland, as you say, the US far more powerful. I mean, overall, globally, capitalism is becoming more extreme, not less extreme. We've moved away from the social democratic era of capitalism, the Keynesian version of capitalism, towards this extreme neoliberal market fundamentalist version of capitalism. And the reason for that is that capitalism generates its own momentum. People gain power under the system, and they play the system with the use of that power. Are we seeing any of the things we want to see happening? No, we're not. not. Nothing, nowhere near the scale that we need to see them on. Because, to, to um, go to the second question, because of the sunk costs already invested by large capitalist enterprises, be it Exxon or BP or whoever it might be, they have got their investments which they are trying to protect and they use political means like um, funding Donald Trump or Scott Morrison or Jair Bolsonaro in order to protect those investments. And they gain control over the system as a whole. So for years and years, all four of us on this panel, you know, and I applaud and salute Adair and Tony for all their efforts, we've been trying to fight this system from within. Are we winning? No. We are failing spectacularly because you cannot fight it from within because it generates its own power. This is why we need to be pressing, and with this, this is a, an effort of global persuasion, to say we have to fight this from without by demanding and creating a new system.
2: Thank you. Thank
4: you. Let me pick up the point about small and large population countries. In fact, uh, the greatest part of my focus this year is on the decarbonization of the Chinese economy. I'll be spending about six weeks in total uh, in China probably not in the next couple of weeks, has been a little little delay in the launch of our next thing. And what we are trying to do there is to persuade China that it could be a zero carbon economy by 2050. Uh, Xi Jinping has a phrase, China 2050, a fully developed rich economy. And we have recently produced a report called China 2050, a fully developed rich zero carbon economy. Now, is China a capitalist or a socialist country company, economy it 's called locally uh, an economy of socialism with Chinese characteristics. Um, some people think it would be better be called a capitalist economy with chinese characteristics it 's a funny mix, but it has a very dynamic private sector. The solar PV panels, the, uh, the, uh, the, the batteries, the EVs are all being developed by amazingly uh, dynamic uh, Chinese entrepreneurs overlapping with a state sector, many of which are those state-owned companies almost act as if they were private companies in the terms of the way they uh, look after the managers of those. So it's it's a complicated thing to understand, but it is certainly a form of market economy with many of the aspects of capitalism to it.
2: Still building Uh, coal-fired... And
4: I have to say, if I turned up... Well, let me come back to that. If I turned up there and said, OK, guys, what you have to do is to reject capitalism we'd get nowhere, right? What happens in China is fundamental. Their emissions are now 10 gigatons of CO2, 12 gigatons, including the other greenhouse gases. Ours are uh, 450 and falling. Even on a per capita basis, they are going above UK and European levels. And to win the argument in China, there is only one way to do it, which is to convince them that it is technologically possible for them to be a proud, rich, developed society in which Chinese people enjoy the opportunities, okay. the economic opportunities that we enjoy, that it's technologically possible to do that and be a zero carbon economy. I'm and that's, that's how you have to win it. And in order to deliver it, you also have to use powerful market economy techniques involving entrepreneurs competing with one another to drive down the cost of batteries, to drive down the cost of electrolysis equipment, to drive down the cost of solar PV. So I think when you look at that large... Population country, whereas I say that is where most of my focus is uh, this year, I would say the idea that we have to uh, approach this issue by suggesting the rejection of capitalism uh, is just completely the wrong way to go. I'm going
2: to pause you there because Fahana wants to come in. (laughs) Yeah, on the question of
5: subsidies, so in 2009, the biggest, richest countries in the world, the G7, came together and agreed to phase out fossil fuel subsidies, 2009 – Okay, so that's why I'm convinced that coming together and trying to get these agreements, which then are negated, is impossible in this system without something else happening. And that something else happening is, first of all, I I think my opponents need to accept the failures of the system. And that's why I'm here, to convince you, but also to convince them to have a little bit of a a wake-up moment, a little bit of atonement, a little bit of a... Yes, we failed because we did not recognize the magnitude of the political weight and the magnitude of the problems cannot be fixed with techno-managerial solutions. The second point I want to make is about populations. So many of the countries that you suggested, many of the continents that you suggested, have extremely low per capita emissions. It's not the size of the populations that matters. It's their consumption, whether they're doing it, it within their own countries or or offshoring it actually elsewhere. So China's emissions are mainly coming from us and consumption no, no, no. by us. No, no. A lot of that 10% is coming. Percent
4: of them are. No, you can't. You can't say something which is just not true. Okay. Ten percent so, of. Them so are let me finish. From let
5: me finish. Well, that's ten percent. Is right. still it's a large. lot.
4: It's a lot, number. but it's not all. That's, it's not most. It's not most. It's
5: not all, but but it's the richest people in the in this country that are responsible for the bulk of the UK's emissions. So the, you know, the bottom 75%, you know, the, remember the pyramid of extraction? They don't fly. They don't have cars. They don't have second homes. They don't have the kind of luxury okay. lifestyles. So I think we need to not keep looking at whether it's population that's the driver. And I think Tony's also, you know, very fixated on population as the driver of, you know, destruction. Right. It's actually this extractive system um, which accumulates for the benefit of I a few. Want to get
2: few. There's a whole queue of people up there with questions. Tony, I'm going to give you a last chance just to Go back to the questions, answer some of the points that have
6: been raised. So, you know, I'm, I'm in total agreement with this idea that we need to change the system. But there are two really important questions that you must answer when you say that. Number one is change the system to what? And then the second bit is how do you change the system? And so we need a clear pathway between here and where we're going to go next. And if we're going to go somewhere where we're going to want to take 7.7 billion people with us, we have to have an offer that is both realistic and attractive, and which has got some means of garnering political and democratic support for it. And so we have to be very clear. I have thought about this a fair bit, and I think that probably our best chance in the 10 years that we've got left is to adapt the existing system into something that can start to look like it's ecologically sustainable. If we just push it into uh, the uh, margins, what do we finish up with? We finish up with a lot of chaos. We finish up probably with unemployment. We finish up possibly with people not having energy or food, literally, because all of those things are presently delivered by capitalist organizations. And without a pathway between here and what we want to change to, I think we're going to be wasting our time. Far better to advocate for changing the existing system. Let's change the hard caps in law. Let's change the subsidy regime. Let's put a carbon tax in place. Let's give capitalism a purpose. And let's change the measure of GDP to something which is more about what
2: society needs. Let's take some more questions. I'm going to go... Just to say, the final vote's taking place, so hopefully you've all put your cards in, um, and if you're still undecided, you put the whole card in, if you're not there or there. I'm going to go up to the balcony and take three from up there, so go for it, and be brief, because we're not a lot of time.
1: I'm a mum three, and um, I think I'm going to ask a question that my kids
4: would probably want to know the answer to, um, which is, so if, 70, if there's 100 companies that are responsible for 70% of CO2 emissions since the 1980s, um, the people at the top of these companies... Why don't they care? Are they psychopaths? <laughs> um, and the, the governments that they, that they support, yeah. And secondly, um, I want to ask for, uh, for a gut feeling here from you guys,
1: and um, maybe a little bit of hope for me, please. Um, have we got this? Can we apply the brakes in
4: time? Um, or are my kids who are eight, six, and four gonna die prematurely in some kind of climate-related war over resources?
2: Thank you. I'm going to start at this end of the table, just for a change. Adair Turner.
4: Gramsci said you must be uh, pessimistic of the intellect, but optimistic of the will. You must carefully work out what your chances of success are with a bias to pessimism so that you are realistic, but then you must try and change those chances. I'm 100% convinced that if there were a benign deity... Again, above us, and if she sent angels in the night to steal all our fossil fuels by 2050, that we would by then build a zero-carbon economy, and that we would hardly notice the cost of getting there on economic standards of living. I think there's about a 30% chance that we will do that, and I'm afraid my blunt belief is that the 70% chance we're probably going to fail. So my aim in life is to turn 30 to 31 to 32 to 33 in Europe, particularly in India and in China, where I work. But in order to shift it from 31 to 32 to 33, I think turning up and saying that the thing to do is to reject capitalism rather than reform it is likely to reduce the probabilities that I will increase that from 31 to 32 to 33 rather than increase it. But that, I'm afraid, is my honest assessment of the odds as we face them at the moment.
2: And what about the question about do those companies simply not care?
4: I think it varies. I think uh, there are fossil fuel companies which now take the science very uh, seriously. Um, And I think there are others, and I'm not going to name which they are, uh, which really uh, don't uh, at all. I think uh, there isn't a a unified approach within the fossil fuel companies of the world. I think there's quite a spectrum of different points of view. (laughs) No, no, look, they are fossil fuel companies, but some of them want to get out of fossil fuels and some don't. Some some of them are denying the science and others are not denying the science. They're
2: jumping up and down on the side
3: of the table. so, So let's take the ones who aren't denying the science, like Shell and BP. Shell won't even tell me what its investments are in renewables. They do not feature in its annual report because they are so tiny. Instead, it is trying to invest as much in fossil fuels this year as it invested last year and the year before and the year before. It's trying to maintain those investments because that's where the value of its capital is. We ask, why don't these people care? The people might care. The system does not care. They have a fiduciary duty towards the investors in that system to maximize the value of their investment. That is the central premise of capitalism. What Adair and Tony are trying to do is to take a system which, as I hope I demonstrated at the beginning, is innately unsustainable, innately drives us towards disaster and says, let's turn it around and make it sustainable. It is innately destined not to be. They are chasing unicorns. And I hope you haven't voted for them.
5: (laughs) Can I a Very briefly, I want to get one more question. um, No, absolutely. So, you're, you're absolutely right that many of these companies knew, they've known for 40 years, and their strategy was to obfuscate, deny, and delay every month delay is usually millions of pounds. That's why I told you about what Saudi Aramco does. Its strategy literally is second per second delay of yeah. the inevitable and they have huge power these industries to stop that. They are on trial. Lawyers are taking them. Citizens are taking them to court. I hope as a lawyer those legal processes will deliver justice. I hope that opinions like this debate will show to those CEOs and everyone who's in touch with them that they are failing humanity and their legacy will be one of, you know, destruction. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. But right. I, I, I feel I want to say- that now ecocide is what is happening. It I'll fits
2: the facts. I want to take one more question from the floor. The, the question I have, I, I think, is, you know, China has had uh, a benevolent dictator for two and a half thousand years. He's the man you have to persuade. President Xi has a control of such a vast potential... Uh, you know, when they wanted to reduce their population, they introduced a, a one-child policy. They did it overnight. They can create change overnight, more or less. So President Xi is,
0: is the man that you have to talk to, I think.
2: Sorry. There's an invitation, to Dare Turner.
4: Let me just get out my mobile phone and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Is it fair to put it all at the uh, the foot of President Xi? This is a very middle-class conversation in some ways, isn't it, about us? Just to bring it back here in the UK. Is it fair for us to ask those countries over there to change their ways when we're not prepared to change ours? Very briefly.
4: Well, the answer is, uh, in this country, I raise issues about people's lifestyle Right, about what I or other people have done in terms of their transport choices, their diet choices. I think that's legitimate here. I don't raise those issues in China because at the moment they have a GDP per capita about a third of us. So I don't think it's appropriate to raise those issues when they're still at that level. I think you're broadly right that China is not a complete, it's actually got more decentralized power structures than you might think, and it has some big coal lobbies, which, by the way, are state owned coal lobbies, preventing some of the move towards renewable energy, which is primarily driven by private entrepreneurs. That happens to be the way around in China. But we do have to try and influence the Chinese power structure. The good news is, there's lots of bad news about the Chinese power structure, but it is a technocratic, scientific structure that believes in experts. So, when their scientific experts say climate change is for real, the Himalayan glaciers are going to melt, this is going to do terrible things to our river flows, they take it seriously. Okay. So, one has to work with that and see whether one can get more aggressive targets for decarbonisation than those that are in place already.
2: George or Fahana, who, who would
3: like to answer? That's such an easy question. I'll leave it to (laughs)
2: Farhan.
5: I think you know we're always waiting for the right leader to come along, and I feel that one of the mistakes of the past has to has been that we didn't involve people. We really didn't involve people. A lot of these technical plans, a lot of these solutions, were never tested on you know tested with people, and were they willing to accept that? So yes, leaders matter. I'm not saying that Chinese leadership doesn't matter. But the leadership of people, the voice of people matters even more. And that's why, for example, Extinction Rebellion has been very vociferous in demanding uh, citizens' assemblies and selections. And I would say in response to the question about what are your alternatives, actually, you know, all of the executive boards, all of the decision-making structures should now have mandatory representation of every cohort and of population. So there are pragmatic ways in which we can fix governance without going to nationalization and ownership. This isn't about that. You can put, uh, uh, you know, three, three young people who sit on all of the decisions. Uh, why not? You can have an ombudsperson uh, who looks after the rights of uh, citizens. Uh, those who are excluded from, from voting, who are okay. literally not being uh, seen and heard in the current voting system. So there's lots of ways in which practically we can reform capitalism, but I think after that reform, it doesn't look like capitalism and it won't result in
2: all of the uh, egregious okay. degradation that we've been talking about. We're going to wrap up the questions there. I have in my hand a piece of paper, sure. which is the final vote on the motion to stop climate collapse. We must end capitalism. Now, before the debate... of you were in favour of the motion, 28% were against, and 34% were undecided. But now, 35% of you are for the debate, 58% are against, and 7% of you still don't know what you think. George, Fahana, Adair, Tony, thank you all very much. Thank you very much to Intelligence Squared and thank you to all of you.
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.